Thanks, man. Great time of worship. Good morning, church. We're going to meet Acts chapter 11, finishing up this chapter. We resumed our uh, study in Acts last Sunday after a uh, long uh, hiatus from that. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Acts 11, uh, 19 through to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> start with a quote here today. Some of you will recognize the name uh, of the person who said this. Uh, Most people fail uh, not because of a lack of desire, but because of a lack of commitment. Uh, most people fail not because of a lack of desire, but because of a lack of a commitment. Uh, Vince Lombardi is pretty smart uh, for a football coach. And what does it mean when we think of that? What does it mean to make a commitment? That's a word we use a lot around here, a lot as Christians. What does it mean to be all in on something? And it's a challenging question because we live in a, in a, in a culture that's very casual about these things. It's a come and go culture. It's a throwaway culture. And we struggle to be committed in so many different areas of our lives. We struggle with friendships and churches and jobs and marriages. And all of these, to a greater or lesser degree in our culture, are seen as disposable arrangements. Things like lifelong vows and pledges seem anachronistic in our times. And it's a good question uh, to ask is how did we actually get here? How did we get from being high commitment to being very low commitment? And a gentleman by the name of Arthur uh, Lindsley said this, the widespread relativism in our culture undermines any clarity about what to be committed to. This is, this is because it leaves us unsure as to what, if anything, is most worthy And what Lindsley is saying is in essence this, when as is commonly said in our culture, like this is the the prevailing message of our culture, when you say the truth is relative, when truth is relative to a person, when you say things like your truth is not necessarily my truth, or you say things like um, truth, if uh, uh, if it exists, truth, if it exists, cannot be known, when you say things like that, when you embed that into the cultural psyche, and even as Christians, when we hear that stuff, we're influenced by those sayings more than we care to admit. If if you embed that into the cultural psyche, if that becomes the way of thinking, then finding value in anything becomes impossible. And, and And if you don't put value on something, then why in the world would we commit to it? That's exactly what Lindsley is saying. Now, for those of us who are Christians, and I'm going to address you as Christians, even though I'm fully aware that not everybody in this room is a Christian, not everybody who's watching online right now is a Christian, but I'm going to speak to the Christians right now. For the Christians standing outside of that culture, we're in that culture, but we're not, you know, of that culture, clarity is actually achievable for us. Because we understand, as we have been singing in our worship just a few moments ago, we understand that while the world may struggle to find anything that's worthy of commitment, we know that Jesus Christ is worthy, amen? Jesus Christ is worthy. And so we value what God values, and we make commitments to the things that God says are valuable and worthy. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said, we look not to the things that are seen, the culture, the world around us, but but to the things that are unseen. 
And he goes on to explain, for the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so you and I, as committed Christians, again, I'm speaking to the Christians in, in the room, you and I as committed Christians, and I'm gonna lift a phrase right out of our passage right now from verse 23, we remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, with commitment, we remain steadfast to the Lord. And we're gonna see in the passage today, uh, believers committed to that, committed in, that, in, the, in their character, committed in their mission. They're gonna show that to us. And the challenge is gonna be, let's live that out ourselves. Let's, let's emulate what we're seeing in this passage and embody that in our own lives. So let's turn our attention to the text. Uh, this is Acts 11, uh, looking at verse uh, 19 through uh, to 30. Ready for this? I will take that as representative of all of you. All right. Verse 19. <clears throat> now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, uh, on the screen and in your notes, you're going to see this. This is what we're going after. As a Christian, we're going to talk about our steadfast purpose. So as a Christian, I steadfastly purpose to, first of all, work within the conditions that God sets out for me. Okay, I'm going to work within whatever life situation God has me in. I'm going to see that as the thing that God wants to use in my life and through me in the lives of others. Now, one of the great things about preaching narratives from the scripture, one of the awesome things about that is you have a story and it's, 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 it's easier or at least it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fun for us in some ways to insert ourselves into the story to try and understand exactly what was going on. So I want you to imagine what's going on. This is the early church. We're just a few years out from the, from the resurrection, the ascension, and the establishing of the church on the day of Pentecost. So imagine what it was like for those first believers in Jerusalem after the resurrection, after the ascension, the Holy Spirit has come and, and, and the city is being turned upside down. People are hearing the message. People are coming to faith in Christ. There's rapid, rapid growth. Thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and getting baptized as a testimony to their faith in him. 
And, and this, is a, this is an incredible time. It would have been awesome to be part of the church in those days. There would have been people in the church in those early days who had actually heard Jesus teach, people who had actually seen him do miracles. There may have been people around who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. There was a large number of those who had seen the resurrected Christ. Some who had heard about the ascension and all that happened on the mountainside would have been an incredible time to be part of the whole thing. To see the city turned upside down as it was, and it was great. Until one day, Stephen, part of the church, gets up to preach a sermon. Nobody thought anything of it. It's just another sermon. Stephen's going to preach a, a great word. Let's go listen to him. And then at the end of the sermon, I don't know if it was before or after the you are loved, but it was like at the end of the sermon, what do they do? The religious leaders stone him to death. And all of a sudden, all the excitement and all the joy and all the amazing things that are happening in Jerusalem around the church, all of that now is thrown into chaos and, and, and a persecution ensues upon the church. In fact, if you go back a few pages to chapter eight, here's what we read. Luke recorded this. And there arose on that day, on the day that Stephen preached and was killed, a great persecution. And it was kind of like, you know, well, we've killed Stephen and now we feel emboldened. Now we can persecute everyone. Up until that point, there was kind of a little bit of holding back on it. But now everybody was a target. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And notice they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And so that's in chapter eight. Luke picks that up again, these, these chapters later, and he adds in some details about where they actually went. And he says in verse 19, now those who were scattered. Now, how many people, how many people like maps? You're map people. Raise your hand. That's disappointing. I was hoping for way more hands. I'm a map person. So for today, you're all map people. Okay. How many people would say, look, when I look at a map, I have a hard time telling the water from the land. How many people are like that? Like maps don't do anything for you. It's nice of you to confess that. Let's look at a map here. We're going to look at a map today. And uh, this is a map of Israel. You can see right at the very bottom, near the bottom, you can see Jerusalem, there's a little star. So you see where Jerusalem is and that's where the church started and that's where everything's going down here. Stephen is killed in Jerusalem. The persecution starts there and now the people are scattered out from Jerusalem. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as, first of all, they went to Phoenicia. There's Phoenicia right there. Now, how, who can tell me modern day Phoenicia, what country is it? Lebanon, who said that? Nobody at nine o'clock knew that, so good for you. <laughs> Clearly a smarter crowd at 11, but to be fair, you slept longer today. So, so Phoenicia and also Cyprus. Cyprus is barely on this map, but there it is. There's Cyprus. These people said, you know what? The persecution is so intense. I'm getting on a boat and I'm gonna go to the closest island. So they go to, they go to Cyprus. Some of them were probably from Cyprus. And then um, very critically, they said, um, we're gonna go to Antioch. And Antioch is up in the north. You can see this city here. Uh, it was part of the, the Roman province of Syria at the time. It's part of modern day Turkey today. Uh, that's where Antioch is. And, um, and the distance, just so we understand for, for the non-map people, the distance from Jerusalem to Antioch, so we're getting an understanding of how, how big of an area this is, is about 660 kilometers, 
Or, and you say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. If you, if you were to drive from my hometown of Montreal down to Kitchener-Waterloo, that's about 660 kilometers, so about six hours in the car, for those of you who don't like maps or distances. There's six hours in the car, okay, to get from Jerusalem to Antioch. And, and notice, as they're spreading out to Phoenicia, they're getting on a boat and going to Cyprus, they're going all the way up to Antioch, the text tells us they're, they're spreading the word, they're speaking the word the entire time, everywhere that they're going. Now, the gospel's going out as a result of this persecution. And among those who were saved in the early going were, and we talked about these last week, these Greek-speaking Jews. These new Christians who were eager missionary evangelists are now going back to their, in a lot of cases, their home countries where they were originally from, and they're taking the gospel with them as they spread out around the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And um, the, all of these Jews, by the way, living outside of Judea, those Jews that were living outside of Jerusalem, Judea, were known as um, uh, the, 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 the diaspora, diaspora, the diaspora. These are diaspora Jews who live, and there's all kinds of diaspora Jews today, Jews who live outside of Israel. And uh, Paul, was, Paul is himself was part of the diaspora. He was from uh, Cilicia, We'll see that in a bit. Barnabas was from Cyprus, the island that we just saw. And, and, we, and we think about, like, why are there so many Jews who are Greek-speaking Jews? And you have to go 300 years back in history. As much as I love maps, I also love history. So we go back 300 years from the time that we're talking about here in Acts, and we hear about a man named Alexander the Great who went around the known world, around the Mediterranean, as far as India and into Egypt, and he conquered all of this land in a very short period of time. And what he brought with him was Greek language and Greek culture 300 years before the time of Christ. Every scholar will tell you the main reason why, aside from the Holy Spirit himself, the main reason why the gospel was able to spread so quickly around the Mediterranean world, around the Roman Empire, was because they all spoke the same language. Because Alexander had created one culture that covered all of this vast land area. And that's why our New Testament is written in the Greek language. God had, through history, used Alexander the Great to set up the conditions necessary for the gospel uh, to spread. So these Greek-speaking Jews living around the world had a heart for the Gentiles that they lived among to hear the gospel because that was the culture they knew and the culture they lived in. They spoke the language, but it was persecution in Jerusalem that got them to move out to all of these areas and to move them toward more missional success. And with the missional success, and again, this is going to speak to our point here, with the missional success came more persecution. This is where we come to understand why this is so important to us. Am I willing to work within the conditions that God has set out for me? Because they were working within the conditions that God had set out for, him, for them, but it was very difficult. They were comfortable in Jerusalem. It was awesome. People were getting saved and baptized. The gospel was being manifested in people's lives in an extraordinary way. And now they were pushed out and they had watched Stephen be killed. And they were now all under threat. And yet they continue to work within the conditions that God had laid out for them. And we don't, we don't want to hear this. We really don't want to hear this. 
because the conditions that God set out were hard on them, but were best for the mission. And God may do the same in every one of our lives. How accepting am I of the conditions that God has set out for me? Like, I'm, I'm not facing the same thing that these first century Christians were facing. I'm, I'm not being pushed out of my church in my city to go to another region because people are trying to kill me today as a result of preaching this message. I'm not facing that. But every single one of us do have very particular and personal circumstances that make life hard and press in against us and against our steadfast purpose to live for Christ. Does our steadfast purpose, our commitment to God, does that waver as soon as life gets hard? That's the question. When life doesn't go our way, I have some examples loaded up here. Do you want to hear them? I bet you do. <laughs> Example number one. This one will hit close to home for almost everybody, I would think. If, if your personal budget, think about your household budget. If your household budget is tight, I feel like that's describing just about everybody in the room right now. Your household budget is tight. And we, we are living in, in a downturn. This, these are difficult economic times for a lot of people. And, and the easiest thing for us to do as Christians is when we're going through the household budget, we're going like, I, I, I have less income coming in or I have the same amount of income coming in, but this bill and this bill and this bill and this bill are all higher. Mortgage, mortgage is out through the roof. We had to renegoti renegotiate. It's through the roof now. I don't know. The bottom line is too red for me. And we go back through that list and the, and the easiest thing to cut, the lowest hanging fruit is our giving to the mission, isn't it? Or we'll cut that in half or we'll cut it out altogether because the budget just simply doesn't make sense. It's, 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 that's, our, that's the circumstance that God has given us. That's the life condition that God has put in front of us. And can we instead look at our budget and go, you know, we could trim this and we don't have to do this and we don't have to go there and we could have a different car or we could, we could adjust things here and we could maintain or we, we can keep giving to the mission of Jesus Christ so other people will know about the Lord. Secondly, um, if, if life is busy, think about your calendar and all the things you have on your calendar Work goes in there, and, and that's pretty static. I get it. We have, we have work on there. Some people work too much. You could probably cut that back. All the kids stuff. I got all the activities and all the things. I got to run the kids to all this here and there and everywhere. And we look at our calendar, and we just go, you know what? It's too busy. We got to cut it down. Again, the low-hanging fruit. What comes off? Well, we're not going to go to our small group, and I, you know, I can't serve anymore, and so I'm not in Harvest Kids, or I'm not greeting at the door, I'm not leading a small group, or wherever it happens to be, that's the thing that comes off the calendar first. Well, I can't go to church as often as we, as we used to. We'll catch the live stream. We'll do whatever, maybe. Here's a third one. If we face, not if, when... When we face some discouragement, a trial, a setback of some kind, 
do we, do we blame God for this? God, don't you know how faithful I am to you? Why is this happening to me? We blame God, we distance ourselves from him, and we distance ourselves from his people, from the church. Or do we see this as an opportunity for growth, believing that God has some greater purpose in mind? And I get it. As I'm saying these, I know that there are people in the room and you're in the thick of it right now. I'm describing circumstances that you yourselves are going through right now. So if we're poor or we're infirmed or we're grieving a, 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 a loss, a deep loss, if we're out of work, if we're being oppressed, if we're persecuted, we have to see these as conditions that God sets out for us and increasingly press in toward him to be greater, in a greater way, engaged in the mission, in a greater way to our faith. And yes, it'll be painful as it was painful for those believers having to pack up all their things in a hurry and escape Jerusalem. It'll be hard. And in some respects, you're gonna look at the situation and go, I need to step out in faith because this looks absolutely impossible to me. Like there is no other way. C.S. Lewis spoke to this. I, I, I saw this quote about a, a month ago. It's from a letter that he wrote that was released after he died. Lewis said this, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Trials, difficulties, pains, sorrows, loss, these are not anomalies in the Christian life. These are the Christian life. And God's intent is to use these for his purposes, for his mission, to bring us to a greater level of devotion to him, but also to impact the lives of others who don't yet know him. That's the greater work that he's seeking to do. Here's a second one. As a Christian, I also steadfastly purpose to innovate appropriately in, in fulfilling the mission. Change, change, innovate appropriately. Just to ch I, 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 I recognize that there are times when things have to change to fulfill the mission. E even the Greek-speaking, initially, even the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were only reaching Greek-speaking Jews with the gospel of Jesus. They, initially, they weren't thinking at all about reaching Gentiles or non-Jews. And so verse 19 continues and says that this crowd were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, last week, um, and in chapter 10, when we looked at that chapter, we, we looked at uh, Peter and his encounter with Cornelius. The story is told in chapter 10. In chapter 11, the first part of this chapter, uh, we saw the recap of that where Peter's giving a report to the leaders in Jerusalem. And that was Peter's encounter with a Gentile. Cornelius was a Roman soldier. And, and this was pushing the boundaries or stepping right over the boundaries that had been set in terms of Jews interacting with Gentiles. And while Peter was having that encounter in this small group setting with, with Cornelius' family and his entourage, 
it's, it, it's ha- in a parallel fashion, we have everything that's happening here in the latter part of chapter 11 in the city of Antioch in a much bigger way. You have a small group move among Gentiles and you have a much larger group move that's happening in Antioch. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas would eventually be engaged in this whole thing and we would see large numbers of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ in Syria and belong. And we see here that, that starting right here, verse 20, notice this, but there were some of them, some of these Greek-speaking Jews, these are the ones who are gonna kind of step over the line and begin ministering to Gentiles. There were some of them Oh, wow, my notes tell me I have another map. Here we go. This one fills the whole screen. Do you see it? It's awesome. So now this is a, a much wider shot of the uh, Eastern Mediterranean area. And we, and we see here now, there were some of them, some of these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, men of Cyprus. Okay, we saw Cyprus earlier. Now we get to see the whole island. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, where's Cyrene? It's all the way over there in North Africa. Um, What modern day country is that? Libya, very good, who is that? Same guy? Such a keener. Good job, Ian. That's Libya, so Cyrene. Hey, you know what's cool about Cyrene though is we had a glimpse of Cyrene earlier in the gospel story because uh, remember when Jesus was on his way to Calvary and he was carrying the cross section uh, that he would be crucified on and then he couldn't do it anymore. And, and there was a guy named Simon and he was from Cyrene. He was from Libya. He was likely a Jewish. Uh, he was like a Greek speaking Jew who was in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover and he's a bystander and he ends up carrying the cross beam, but he was from he was from Cyrene. He was from the area of Libya uh, at the time. And there's even uh, stories perhaps of Simon or his sons coming to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of everything uh, that, that happened uh, to them. And so we have men of Cyprus and men of Cyrene. These are as examples um, on coming to Antioch. Now they're making their way to Antioch, which you can, you can see near that uh, pink arrow on the right. You can see where Antioch is. And they spoke to the Hellenists. This is another word for the Greeks. They spoke to the Gentiles, the the actual Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see happening in the book of Acts here is so critical because we see a shift happening here. And this shift or this change wasn't going to be comfortable for anyone. It's not going to be comfortable for the new Greek Gentile Christians, it's not going to be comfortable for the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians, it's not going to be comfortable for the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians either. It's going to be so uncomfortable, in fact, and such a challenge that as the gospel begins, continues to spread, they have to call a church council in Jerusalem. In chapter 15, we'll see this. They have to get together with the leaders from around the world to have a discussion about how we have a church that has Gentiles and Jews in it. And the principle is this, coming out of, of, um, of this chapter. The church must tenaciously hold to the core tenets of the faith while innovating on methodology in order to reach a new generation or people group. We have to hold on to what we believe and never let go of that, 
but change the methods, change the way we do ministry. It's, it's, it's remarkable though, how quickly and how entrenched we can become and not wanting any change to happen in our lives. We become so comfortable with things done in a certain way at a certain time, and we don't want anything to ever upset that. I'm, I'm dangerously close to 60 years old, which means I like things done in a certain way at a certain time. And what I have uh, come to understand is that the older you get, the more intense that rigidity becomes. And some of you are nodding your heads because you have older parents um, who are so set in their ways. That's the way we say it, right? Like the older you get, the more set in your ways you become. Now that is fine. Let's, let's triage some situations here. That's fine if, if it's like at 7 p.m., we need to be in our chairs because Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy are on and we have to watch them. That's fine. That's, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine if, if, if it's like I eat lunch every day precisely at noon and I have the exact same thing every single day. Like for my mom, she's not in the room, it's fruit salad and yogurt every day. And I, get, I rarely get concerned for my mom, but if she has to eat something other than that because somebody takes her out for lunch, I'm very concerned for her. Because it has to be fruit salad and yogurt every single day. Now listen, that's fine. If that's the thing you're being rigid about, who cares? Enjoy Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy at seven and 7.30. Someone should tell you that there are PVRs though, and you could record that. But listen, if that rigidity, that unwillingness to change, if that translates into, I want church to be comfortable for me and outsiders be damned, that's a problem. That's a problem. And that is why so many churches around this country are stuck in the 1980s, to be honest with you. And I'm being kind with that date reference. Because without exaggeration, there are thousands and thousands of churches right now in our country that are dying slow deaths and thousands of thousands more that have already died. And they've died because, and I'm not gonna be polite here, They've died because the old people presiding over the building and ministry have refused to innovate to reach a new generation. And in many cases, and this is absolutely ridiculous because we have said we're gonna tenaciously hold on to the core tenets of our faith and we're gonna change all the ways that we deliver those core tenets. What's ridiculous is that in most of those dying churches, what they have done is the opposite. They have kept all the methodologies from previous generations and changed the core tenets of our faith. And thus they're dying. And what's very tragic is that they are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of property and assets right across this country that they refuse to surrender to the gospel mission. And they will stand before the Lord for that. 
And so if you wonder why our church is always singing new songs, if you wonder why we are always changing how we deliver ministry, if you wonder why we're always learning, always going to conferences, always reading, always trying to do better, why we embrace new technology, why we embrace new methods of communicating with you, this is why. We want to change the methods to suit the times. We're going to dig deeper and deeper into our historic faith, into the doctrine that we believe. We're going to reaffirm at every turn the teaching of the, of the apostles, the apostolic faith that we have embraced and declare while remaining as best we're able, thoroughly contemporary and connected to the culture around us. Because we are called and we are commissioned to reach this city and this county, this province and this country at this time. The 80s are long gone, folks. And we have to reach 21st century people in this country. And we're going to find the very best way to do Here's a third, if I haven't worn you out. I must also steadfastly purpose to reflect the gospel in my life and ministry. Uh, the, the, the Jerusalem church was the, we use this expression in church planting and ministry. The Jerusalem church was the mother church. It, it was the church that, that in essence originated every other church that's out there. And so the, the, the Jerusalem church was to the early mission, the direct mother of all of these, we, we actually use this word, the daughter churches that came out from it. Antioch would be seen as a daughter church of the mother church in Jerusalem. It's exactly the experience we had in 2001. We have a mother church also called Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. It was the mother church and we were the daughter church. They planted us or replanted us. A faithful group of people were here and, and rebooted what they were doing under the oversight of the mother church in Chicago, which gave us this, this um, direction and support and, and protective covering for the thing that we were doing, just as any mother does for their daughter, for their son, for their child. They protect them, they guide them, they nurture them. And that's what our mother church did for us. And that's what we see Jerusalem doing for the church in Antioch, actually for all of these churches. Again, we go back to chapter eight in Acts and, and you had a, a move of the gospel for the first time among the Samaritans. They were half Jewish uh, people group. And, and when the gospel first went into the Samaritans, there was a report, there was some coverage that came from the Jerusalem church to make sure that that was genuinely gospel work that was happening there. Last week, we saw that the Jerusalem church wanted Peter and these other witnesses to come and report on what happened with Cornelius because they're the mother church and they're trying to protect the integrity of the gospel mission. And so that's evidently what's happening here, that Jerusalem wanted to check in and see what was happening among the Gentiles in Antioch. In verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them that was becoming evident, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the mother church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
So they know by this point that the gospel is for Gentiles. They already have that. But they hadn't seen a big move of God among the Gentiles, just the Cornelius story. And so they want to report, but mostly, mostly it seems they want to encourage the believers in Antioch. And, it's, and, and we see that especially with who they sent to them. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But notice something about the nature of getting saved that's embedded in the narrative here. Luke says in verse 21, partway through, you see this, that a great number who, if you're, if you're taking notes here in your Bible, even you just mark two different things happen. And you, you can have an A and a B here. A great number who A, believed, and B, turned to the Lord. A great number who A, believed, and B, turned to the Lord. There's two aspects that are being shown here about coming to faith in Jesus Christ or being saved. Believing in God is not enough. Believing in God does not equate to being saved by God. In the book of James, James writes this, um, speaking of demons, he says, you believe, he's, he's, he's talking to the church, he says, you believe that God is one. Good for you. Glad that you believe that. You do well. And then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons believe in God. So belief is not nearly enough. You have to believe and turn. That's what verse 21 says. You have to believe and turn. Two different things. Repentance, we've defined this so many times. Repentance is, um, is agreeing with God. I agree with God. But it also involves turning from your way of doing things to his. So I'm going to agree with God about sin, about death, about the effects on humanity, about our inability to do anything about that personally, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to find the redemption that I so desperately need. So I'm going to agree with God about that, and I can agree with that and not turn. I can agree that that's the way to be saved and not be saved. So I have to believe and turn from my way to his way, and I had this very conversation with a guest who was with us last week, and she was from out of the country, first time visiting with us. I don't know if, she, if, if she'll ever make her way back up here. It was just maybe a one-time thing for her. But she came and she sat through the service, not a Christian. And uh, she came and she met me in Guest Central, you know, gave her the gift for coming. And then um, I was kind of done in there and she had left and I was out in the lobby talking to some other people. And she came over and she said, I have more questions could we go and, and meet? And, and it was clear that God was stirring in her life. But one of the things that was pretty evident, she says, I've always believed in God. And there's so many people who say that. I've always believed in God. But instinctively she knew, and it was obvious to the rest of the conversation, she knew she wasn't saved. I've always believed in God. But she was afraid to read the Bible because she knew what it was going to say. And she didn't quite want to take that step yet to turn her life. She was demonstrating, a, a non-believer was demonstrating exactly what we're seeing here in verse 21. You have to believe and turn to God. Now back to the action. That's a little aside on salvation. It's so important that Luke put that in there. But in verse 23, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, so he's been sent by the mother church, go check this out, go and encourage them. 
When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, there's, here's our line, with steadfast purpose, with a resolute heart. And so what, what, what exactly does that mean to have this steadfast purpose, this resolute heart? Well, Schnabel, one of our commentators in this series, he said this, the Greek expression translated as devotion or steadfast purpose or resolute heart describes the purpose of one's will. Notice how this embodies the gospel now. The resolve to believe in the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus as Israel's Messiah, Lord, and Savior of the world. To rely on God for the atonement of sins through Jesus' death. To count on Jesus for reconciliation with God. And to depend on the Holy Spirit for the transformation of one's life and behavior. That's what it means. You're saying, like, what does it mean to reflect the gospel? That's what it means to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life and ministry. It's life transforming in absolutely every single way. And that's what Barnabas came to tell them. That's the kind of encouragement that Barnabas was going to bring to them. And, and it flows out of his life because he was a man who embodied the gospel himself. That's why he was the perfect guy for the mother church to send up to this daughter. Luke actually mentions three things about him in verse 24. He was a good man. He, he had exemplary Christian character. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was empowered for ministry. The Holy Spirit was working in his life to change him and working through his life to impact other people. And thirdly, he was full of faith. He believed in Jesus and his life reflected that in his own trust and confidence in God's plan. And so it's not surprising that God was using him. It's not surprising that Jerusalem sent him to Antioch. Now notice, in fact, as a result of everything that's going on, that now what's happening in Antioch is the same thing that happened in Jerusalem. A great many people were added to the Lord. And these are now Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. People were getting saved. The church was growing. God was at work. And the faithfulness and commitment and steadfast purpose of his servants provided the means or the conduit through which the Holy Spirit was working. And it turned out for the salvation of many. So, I'll ask the question for myself, and you can, you can ask it for yourself, but I'll use the first person singular pronouns. Does my life and ministry reflect the gospel? Am I a person of strong Christian character? Let's just go through the three things that Luke says about Barnabas. Does my life reflect a strong Christian character? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit changing me? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit working through me to bless other people? Is, here's, is my faith everything to me? He was full of faith. Is my faith everything to me? Not that my faith is a Sunday thing, one-seventh of the week, Lord, or an occasional thing, a few hours a day. Everything. Everything to me. One of the future leaders in the Antioch church, uh, about six decades later, was a man named Ignatius. You've probably heard his name, especially if you have a Catholic background. But Ignatius... Um, was one of the church fathers. And this was the generation of senior leaders that came after the apostles. 
So you had all the apostles, once they passed off the scene, there was some overlap. You had men like Clement and Polycarp and Ignatius were three of the key church fathers. Ignatius um, was martyred around AD 110. Um, some uh, scholars believe that uh, Ignatius may have known the apostle John because John lived a good long life right up to the end of the first centuries. So it's possible that they overlapped and knew each other. Here's what Ignatius said. Again, he was the bishop or one of the leaders in the church of Antioch. He says, I wish not merely to be called Christian, but also to be Christian. Now, if you, if you take nothing else away from this message, please take that phrase. I wish not merely to be called Christian, but also to be Christian. And that's happening for a lot of people. So things are exploding in Antioch. Barnabas is there doing ministry. Evidently, they're lacking in mature leadership because obviously it's a brand new church. In the early days of our church, we had leadership here, but we didn't have any elder qualified leadership. So the elders in Chicago acted as the elders for our church. Until such time as we had elder qualified men who could take that over. So there's a lack of leadership here, senior leadership, mature leadership in Antioch. So verse 25 says, Barnabas set off, map one again, let's get this. So Barnabas, Barnabas set off from Antioch to Tarsus, this is in Cilicia, modern day Turkey, to look for Saul. So you see where Antioch is, you see where Tarsus is. I mean, I feel like Barnabas could have texted him and told him just to come over. Um, but, but instead, he decides he's just going to walk there. It's 240 kilometers uh, to get there. And he, he gets there just, and just starts looking for him. That seems inefficient to me, but that's what he did. He set off. He went there to look for Saul. Um, and, and when he got, verse 26, and when he had found him, so he, he's good at hide and seek, he's, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, Paul, by this time, ha had been a believer for a while. He was a proven preacher and teacher, theologian. He was passionate about the, the mission. He was a leader in the church. And Paul was unique because he had very strong Jewish credentials in terms of his education and his standing in the Jewish, in the Jewish community, um, but he also had very strong Roman credentials and he was a citizen of Rome and educated and knew uh, the language. He would have known not just Greek, but likely also uh, Latin. And so Paul's like uniquely positioned by God, prepared by God to be a leader in Antioch where you have Jews and Gentiles together in the church. He'd be a huge asset for that. And for a whole year, verse 26 continues, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And they were investing in this church that would in fact become in time the new mother church. Because by AD 70, the Romans are fed up with the Jews and their rebellions and they go into Jerusalem and they raise the city and they knock down the temple and it's kind of over for Jerusalem for a long time. And the, and the, the, the responsibility for the global church moved at that time in AD 70 from Jerusalem to Antioch. And so all of this investment by Paul and Barnabas is so important. And Luke adds this little note at the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the Christians were, the disciples were first called Christians. And this isn't a random little comment that Luke is throwing in here. There's really only two other places in the Bible where we have this in the New Testament. Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he refers to the disciples as being Christians um, or, or um, often it's like um, people who belong to Christ is kind of the expression. It's more of a Latin expression. And then uh, this phrase is also used by Peter in 1 Peter 
4.16, but again, it's with reference to people outside calling them Christians. Christians didn't call themselves Christians. It was a, it was a, a name that was given to them by others to describe uh, who they were. And one commentator suggests that the reason why Luke put the term here in Acts 11 is to mark the transition of the church to be something very separate and distinct from Judaism. It wasn't just seen as a sect of, Jerusalem, of, of Judaism anymore. Now Christianity was clearly something separate and distinct uh, from that. And, and, and the gospel was being seen in everyone's life in ministry as being something very distinct from uh, the former faith. Now, last thing here. Part of that gospel in me that we've just been talking about means that I act with compassion toward those in need. And we have this little paragraph that's tagged on to the end of chapter 11 that speaks to this. This is now the application. If I have the gospel in my life, how's that gonna play out in my life? And Luke notes that as a result of the gospel being received by Gentiles, the establishing of a strong gospel presence outside of Judea, verse 27, there was these prophets or preachers who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And these preacher prophets brought the word of God. They were itinerant preachers who traveled about strengthening the fledgling churches. And they were sent out by the mother church. They weren't just kind of hanging a shingle and becoming their own authority. Verse 28, one of them was named Agabus and he stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke, who's really into detail, that's why we love Luke, he adds this little note here, took place during the days of Claudius, which really helps us to pinpoint the date of this because we know Emperor Claudius uh, how, when he reigned. And uh, we also know from other historical extra biblical records, we know that um, there was a famine in that part of the world in AD 46. So we can pinpoint exactly what's going on here. And having received this word about this famine that was gonna come, verse 29, the disciples determined everyone, this is a key phrase, everyone according to his ability. We're not asking anybody to do that anything that is outside of their own ability to do this. So it's a very personal thing that each of us gets to think about. To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Verse 30, and they did so. Sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And there's an echo here when we see this because this is now an offering being taken for the ministry. And there's an echo here of everything Paul is going to say to the Corinthians about giving. And I'm going to give you very quickly now seven giving principles that Paul talks about in 1 and 2 Corinthians. My giving should be seven things. My giving should be generous. Now, again, we're playing off that phrase here in Acts 11, which is according to my ability. And all of our giving is going to be according to my ability. According to my ability. In other words, I have the ability to be generous. Secondly, I have the ability to be sacrificial, to give sacrificially. I have the ability, it is according to my ability to give willingly and even eagerly. I'm willing to do it and I'm actually super eager to do it. Don't let me not do it. I have the ability to give regularly. I have the ability to give cheerfully, not only do I give willingly and eagerly, but it's hilarious to give. I love to give. I'm so uh, joyful when I give. Sixthly, I, my giving should be trusting of God's provision for me and so many wonderful promises attached to the giving of offerings. And seventh, I give out of gratitude for my salvation. And this really speaks to the great motivation of why I want to do this. I want to do this because God has given me so much and I'm gonna give a small portion of that. 
back into the mission and bless others. And listen, we embody the gospel when we steadfastly purpose in our hearts to act with compassion toward those in need, not just in need because of a famine, war, pestilence, or whatever it happens to be, some very practical thing, very physical thing, but also because there are so many in need of the gospel. And so we give to make sure that we're able to share this life-giving message of Jesus Christ with others around the world, fulfill this mission. That's why we give. And so as we put a bow on all of this, tying it all together, we're going to go back to that very smart football coach's quote, and we're going to adapt it for our situation here and just listen to this. Most professing Christians fail in the Christian life, not because of lack of believing in God, but because of lack of a steadfast purpose to truly live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the challenge that this passage puts in front of us today. And let that not be you. Let that not be you. It's within your ability to make sure that it isn't. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we know uh, that your word is the sword of the spirit, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Father, I'm, I'm fully aware that your spirit's at work right now in, in the hearts and minds of, of everyone who's listening to bring conviction, to help us to fully grasp what we've heard and to see its implications in our lives. So God, I, I pray that every one of us would be very sober-minded and, and open to the Spirit working. Father, it's so easy for us to resist and rebel against the things that we've heard. But God, I pray your Spirit would work to bring about transformation that, God, the things that we're seeing in this book would be true of us. Father, I pray that we would all be resolved this week, resolved in our hearts to have this steadfast purpose, committed to the gospel at the very center of our lives and to proclaiming that same gospel to those who do not yet know you. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.